0: You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled, OSINT and the Future of Investigative Journalism. The talk features Dr. Manisha Ganguly, an investigations correspondent with The Guardian. Dr. Ganguly spoke about the impact of open source investigative techniques in newsrooms, including changing workflows and stress. The Stage Talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella and Eric Toller on the Bellingcat Discord server on November 28, 2022. We're very lucky to have a really great guest today. Um, she's somebody that I met, uh, a couple of years ago. I think we met originally, uh, I think you, I can't remember how we met, but we met many years ago when you were still doing your PhD. Um, and, uh, since then you've completed it. Um, and now you've, you've made a career first at the BBC and now, uh, your newest chapter is beginning at, at the Guardian. I'm talking of course, of Dr. Manisha Ganguli who's an investigations correspondent at The Guardian. She focuses on OSINT and human rights. Uh, Her international investigations for the BBC have won numerous awards and have been broadcast to over 300 million people worldwide. Manisha is highly accomplished. She's a Forbes uh, under 30 media honoree. She was named Journalist of the Year in 2022 by One Young World. And of course, she has a PhD in the future of investigative journalism from the University of Westminster. Uh, she's going to talk to us about the future of investigative journalism and open source research. She's going to be focusing uh, on alienation, how structural imbalances of race, class, and gender are replicated in the OSINT space. So uh, first of all, uh, uh, Dr. Gankuli, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're really lucky to have you here today. I'm going to hand over the microphone to you. I have to run off My colleague, Eric, will take care of the Q&A. Folks, as you're listening to this, if you have questions, if you want to engage with the talk, as Dr. Ganguly is giving it, please go ahead and type in the Stage Talk channel. Um, It's always super active in there. And if you do have questions at the end or throughout, you can just ask them in there. So, Dr. Ganguly, thank you so much for coming. I'll hand over the microphone to you. Thank you so
1: much, Giancarlo firstly for inviting me and also for uh participating in the study that i'm going to be discussing today uh i'm a long time fan of bellingcat i actually did some workshops with them when i initially started out so i was it was a no-brainer when you asked me to present um some of the, some of the results from my study here so as you mentioned um i'm an investigative journalist by training i mostly specialize in open source but uh, specifically open source how it intersects with international humanitarian law and war crimes investigations um for the past four years i worked for the bbc world service um specifically in middle east and north africa and then later on moved to russia china and most recently doing an investigation in ukraine uh, so my study is called um the future of investigative journalism but i started off uh, from a very selfish perspective i wanted to essentially understand whether at any point in the future a robot could do my job i.e can we automate the entire process of OSINT and the two uh, organizations i chose for my study were the BBC and Bellingcat because they present opposite models uh, whereas the BBC is sort of a heritage institution which was slowly coming to grips with OSINT and investigative journalism. Uh, on the other hand, Bellingcat was kind of formed organic organically and was initially um volunteer driven, volunteer run, and got its initial funding from grants and crowdfunding. And then and- uh, w- sorry, there's a little bit of echo. Can everyone hear me all right?
2: Oh, sorry, was not muted. Sorry about that.
1: <laughs> oh, that's all right. Um so yeah and um The study sort of uh, looks interviews 30 of the best open source uh, researchers that were currently practicing about four years ago, Uh, five from the BBC, five from Bellingcat. Um, And I was particularly aware of precarious labor in journalism, specifically in the OSIN space. So I uh, spoke to 10 male freelancers. And since open source is kind of aligned with um, STEM fields where um, there is particularly a gender bias, I wanted to allocate um, 10 of the respondents um, uh, and spoke to 10 female freelance journalists to understand their experience of the industry. And the main research questions were sort of, what were the consequences of automation and investigative journalism, uh, such as how automated tools were changing the work that investigative journalists do, what were the risks and the advantages of doing this kind of work and what were the risks for mental health. Um, The last one on mental health actually came out organically when I was asking respondents about stress, uh, work-life balance and overwork, because most, um, like I mentioned earlier, reported symptoms of vicarious trauma. And since um, this was the first sort of academic study on OSINT, I thought mental health was quite a huge part because most of the best OSINT researchers of this time, kind of um, grew up um, doing the early work on the Syrian civil war, which was the most documented uh, war before Ukraine happened, of course. Um, So just going back to the basics, what is investigative journalism? It refers to any kind of journalism that seeks to hold power to account, expose hidden wrongdoing and challenge systemic injustices. But I personally believe that all investigative journalism is adversarial in nature. There's been lots of debates about neutrality and objectivity. Uh, Investigative journalism, according to me, is always objective but rarely neutral because um, our job as investigators is to investigate the wrongdoing and then clearly delineate who the aggressor is, who the victim is, and then advocate for the victim's rights. Um, When I sort of talk about the changes in investigative journalism, I sort of, think of these two scenes from two of my favorite films. The first is um, All the President's Men, uh, which um, was um, sort of depicted Bob Woodward of the Washington Post um, uh, meeting with the FBI whistleblower Mark Felt. But specifically, there's that um, scene in the Library of Congress where you see Woodward and Bernstein kind of manually going through thousands um, of files. And then if you contrast to um, the scene in Citizen Four, um, which was the film, uh, the documentary made by Laura Poitras about um, NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, you see uh, there's that uh, scene where she just literally focuses her camera on a bit of the screen and you can see how many thousands of megabytes of data has been transferred per second. That kind of shows how far we've come in terms of um, the developments to investigative journalism. And and what I like to call um, information chaos. It's actually information explosion, but I call it chaos because that's kind of been the experience of most open source researchers coming to terms with it. Um, When I was uh, looking at the sort of changes prompted by technology and the internet, the three main ones were sort of, the first was data investigations, the second was um, social media and open source investigations, and the third would be an amalgamation of old school reporting techniques with human sources, um, combined with information available through platforms for leaks, um, such as as well as you know, large-scale financial whistleblowing, which we've seen quite a lot of. Um, and as a result of this, the roles of investigative journalism has also kind of changed into three well-defined ones. The first is as a witness. Um, to find and legitimize what might be censored. You can see a lot of that um, in, in the work that Bellingcat is doing uh, in Ukraine right now. As an activist advocating for change in accountability, explicitly based on the facts uncovered, a really good example of that is the Windrush campaign done by The Guardian. And finally, um, as an upholder of democratic values and human rights, which often uh, goes hand in hand with uh, the accountability processes of being a witness or an activist. Um, so I wanted to find, uh, so when you talk about, um, OSINT, I don't know if, I think most people might be aware, but the term is borrowed from the intelligence community where open refers to all sources that are publicly available. And I was trying to find kind of the first ever, um, reference to it and I found it, in this memo by a former CIA officer, um, Robert D. Steele, who was writing in 1995. He wrote this memo to the Pentagon where he talks about um, why open source was going to be the future of information gathering and was urging the U.S. military to invest um, in open uh, source-based intelligence gathering. so how is OSINT related to journalism? Well, if you're, if you're on the Belencat server, you might have a clearly good idea. But uh, my definition was that when multiple OSINT tools are used to form the basis or the entirety of an investigation in journalism, the result is categorized as open source investigative journalism. And the broad types that Steele kind of outlines in his earliest memo still holds true now. So the first would be sort of um, SOCMENT, which is social media intelligence, which obviously uh, becomes the most popular kind before Facebook decides to change its algorithm. Uh, GEOINT, which is geospatial intelligence, which uh, has become increasingly popular with the rise of commercial satellites. SIGINT, which signals intelligence, it primarily existed within the domain of state security because it refers to what is commonly known as wiretapping or the interception of signals mostly illegally. And and the state agencies commonly associated with this are the NSA in the US and GCHQ in the UK, uh, both of whom were exposed for mass surveillance by Snowden. But there is a secondary type of signals interception that journalists and civil society can or do engage in which is the monitoring of signals of transportation networks, um, and that includes flight data, data of tankers, marine vessels, as well as network traffic data, which can be manually found. Um, There have been a lot of theories about what has caused the crisis in investigative journalism, and most of them attribute it to um, the pivot to digital, the loss of advertising revenue from newspapers. But I was particularly surprised when i found this early pbs frontline um talk by laura frank where she found that the cuts to investigative journalism actually precede the pivot to digital and that is because investigative journalism rarely makes money because most of the time it is energy intensive it's time intensive it has little to no payoff. In fact, it actually invites uh, more lawsuits. So it is literally the most um, expensive form of journalism that you can do. Um, I'm just going to move on to sort of the goals of um, investigative journalism. I think the main one would be transparency because uh, part of the appeal of OSINT is that it's all publicly available information and um, the workings are kind of shown step by step and can be easily replicated. Um, And then accountability. Um, So the, the ICC has issued multiple arrest warrants based on open source evidence. I think uh, the one that uh, was most significant was the U.S. Warren for the Libyan National Army's um, Special Forces Commander Mahmoud al warfali for 33 counts of war crimes of murder based on open source evidence in the form of execution videos that were uploaded to YouTube, Twitter and Facebook. It also formed the basis of uh, my first ever OSINT documentary for the BBC called War Crimes for Likes. So just going back to the research questions, the first one was sort of automated tools. And I tried to develop a typology of OSINT tools by that. uh, Typology is basically sort of a fancy word for saying. uh, I was categorizing them based on usage. And um, I think there are four main types of tools that you use in an OSINT investigation. The first is discovery tools, which range from search engines, social media sites, satellite imagery, to analysis tools, which are sort of slightly more refined. and dependent on use case. Um, So they range from image and video video forensics, databases, geolocation tools, chronolocation, weapons analysis to facial recognition, cryptocurrency tracking tools. Um, Then there's the visualization side of it. So you have design tools that mostly help you present what you found in the investigation, which um, in my personal experience, you know, uh, also investigations usually start with a spreadsheet and then get increasingly messier. So design tools are kind of critical to presenting them to the audience that might not necessarily be that inclined to go down the rabbit hole with you. And finally, utility tools. They were the kind of uh, miscellaneous tools that I didn't quite know where to fit in, but without them, I don't think innocent investigation would be possible. And... They range from security tools like VPN or tails, um, to archiving tools, communication tools like Signal, uh, to collaboration tools like Google Sheets, Google Docs, and efficiency tools. Um, I wanted to understand um, what the overall time taken to learn an OSINT tool was, and while it varied, the three main factors that I found it depended on were the complexity of the tool, the learning curve of the investigator and the number of applications of the tool. In terms of um, the risks and advantages of the tools, um, I'll talk about the advantages first because that's sort of probably more familiar. The first would be sort of automated image forensics, um, the ability to locate people a lot more easily remote online collaboration, um, the accessibility of the tools, the ability to easily sift through social me- media data, uh, and especially when combined with human local knowledge, it, they're really useful in helping to map social media behavior patterns. Um, they also boost human creativity. Um, they've made digital archiving and digital security a lot easier and we now have sort of specialized tools that can somewhat circumvent state censorship. On the other hand, um, some of the disadvantages reported were that OSINT tools create a false sense of exhaustiveness, which can sometimes be misleading, especially if it's a high stakes investigation. Um, The second was that most, good OSINT tools were quite expensive because um, there has been a shift from sort of the early era of OSINT having a lot of free tools to now most of the good tools being proprietary. Um, There were too many false positives with a lot of the tools, so the human judgment element was still indispensable, and even if you were using a tool, human analysis was still the most critical part of any investigation. Um, The other one that was flagged by uh, most researchers who were working in the Global South was the information asymmetry between the amount of information that was um, available, uh, especially in in states with quite high state censorship. Um, The the main one in terms of automation was that OSINT tools were not a silver bullet to fully automate the process. And that for the free tools, there was a significant data monopoly by big tech. And despite um, some of the tools helping to circumvent state censorship, they can still fall victim to it. And expert knowledge was always required to assess the safety and the efficacy of the OSIN tool that we used in the investigation. Um, the You know, OSINT tools themselves that were discussed um, when putting together this range from open source and freely available to proprietary, the flip side to proprietary tools were that they were too expensive to afford. Um, And the ones that were free, for example, the suite of free tools from Google, which were indispensable, were kind of, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of control over that and i'll um and i'll get into that in the next section uh, a really good example of that was TerraServer, which was run by microsoft um and it was particularly useful in documenting prison deaths in syria but uh, it was sort of suddenly taken offline leaving a lot of um, uh, open source researchers with no alternative i think uh, at its most useful it was used to uh, confirm 289 prison deaths in assets regime by the washington post and also for missile studies Um, the second was that most platforms like facebook operated like a walled data garden and by that i mean that they mined vast amounts of data but they repeatedly, like Facebook specifically, repeatedly changed their algorithm to prevent investigative journalists from using their platform to expose human rights abuses that Facebook itself did not moderate. And it was at liberty to do so unchallenged because it has a market monopoly on that specific kind of data. And as a private company, it was free to operate as such. You know, subsequently, um, Facebook set up a sort of independent um, council um, you know, to hold them account- accountable, but that council in itself is on Facebook's payroll as well. So how independent that decision-making is, is still, you know, open and structurally, Facebook decision-making is beholden to a very small key group of players uh, with power flowing in a top-down manner. So uh, it's not really um, an ecosystem that gels well with the open source or osin for Good community. Um, with proprietary tools, the other sort of, um, the two main issues that came up was first that they were expensive, but secondly, that they operated like a black box. So a lot of the time you were kind of inputting sensitive data from your investigation with no idea of how that information was being retained or how much information was being gathered. And, uh, in fact, one of the researchers that, um, I spoke to said that they had identified, um this osin tool which was um run by the same data broker that uh supplies data was allied to russian intelligence um so there's still a lot more to be done in terms of transparency when you're looking at proprietary tools um another sort of issue that came up in terms of tool design was that most of these tools were being designed by white male western developers that were being applied to far removed contexts so for example they were mostly being used to investigate atrocities that were committed upon black and brown bodies which were in turn often marginalized disenfranchised in parts of the world where you know there's a dearth of data already leading to information asymmetry which then is combined with the lack of agency caused by systemic racism, historic imperialism, and you know the consequences of centuries of colonialism that continue to mark development in these regions. Um, one of my favorite quotes is um, from the People's Platform by Astra Taylor, where uh, she talks about how the intersecting oppressions of race and gender, bring with it the limitations of motivation, resources, time, and power, because these are the assets that are not evenly distributed, even if the internet has removed many of the old barriers to entry, because these are the inequalities that we must take into account when we talk about a level playing field. Uh, Moving away from that, um, I wanted to sort of um, create a summary of the main kinds of practices of OSINT investigative journalism. And I was able to broadly divide it into six categories. The first was um, to find human resources or interviews to understand the human impact of an online phenomenon. Um, second, to record evidence of criminal wrongdoing or human rights abuses. Third, to fight in- misinformation through fact checks. Fourth, to reconstruct events of a crime, to shed light on the incident. Um, Fifth, to expose the abuses of a documented crime. And finally, um, to expose systemic or serious criminal wrongdoing. In terms of how automated tools were changing the work of investigative journalists, uh, the main one was augmented workflows. The positive changes were that these augmented workflows were allowing investigators to get more done in a day. It made verification of online content easier. It reduced over-reliance on human sources. It made the discovery of wrongdoing documented online a lot easier. And finally, as we saw during the pandemic, it allowed for remote work and online collaborations. The only negative sort of main negative impact that was documented was that the most respondents said OSINT had opened up too many lines of inquiry, and that in turn had an adverse impact on work-life balance, such that respondents described, um, and I quote, no longer working from home, but living at work. Um, in terms of the direct threat from automation, most, um, and by that I mean literally most of the... Researchers said they didn't feel the threat because OSINT had actually created more jobs, more work. It was virtually impossible to automate the complete task of an OSINT investigator because human judgment was indispensable, and OSINT tools are definitely not error-free. So investigators will need to be part of the process of analysis. Um, And in terms of automation anxiety, the only respondent out of 30 who said that they felt um, automation anxiety said that The threat came from broken journalism business models and capitalist modes of production, which focused more on profit rather than the impact of the journalism. Um, The next and sort of final section looked at the mental health impact. So I started off by asking uh, respondents, whether they felt any stress. Um, and by stress, you know, there are two kinds of stress. There's distress, which is negative, And then there's eustress, which is good stress, which actually helps you perform better. So 80% of the respondents said that they felt negative distress. Um, 20% said that they were fine. Um, but the main causes of stress were sort of divided into three categories. The first was open source um, investigations related that was specific to it. And the first, of course, was graphic violence um, and content found online. The second most voted was uh, management. Um, this is especially, um, this was not For Bellingcat, because Bellingcat started off more as a native um, OSINT investigative medium, but this was more for newsrooms that were coming to terms with OSINT and the investigative processes. Um, Most of the management were uninformed about vicarious trauma and its impact. There was also a distinct lack of OSINT literacy in management, which overall contributed to a general lack of support for OSINT projects. Um, Then the structure of the OSINT investigation itself was a source of anxiety because uh, it had sort of uncertainty built in by design as you go down the rabbit hole. Um, There was a stress of archiving material before it got taken down by the guilty parties or by sites like Facebook. Um, So Facebook took down a lot of evidence. of uh, crimes committed in Syria and um, during the Myanmar crisis. So um, there was a sort of race against the clock to get all of that archived safely. Uh, the volume of data for the investigation was, of course, um, if, especially if you're you know, doing any work in Ukraine right now, right now, you'll be able to see thousands of videos come in every second. So the volume caused a significant amount of anxiety. Um, Then there was the race to catch the bad guys, and finally, the lack of defined work hours in OSINT, because it was sort of an always-on job, where you could also do the job from anywhere as long as you had a laptop and a working internet connection. Um, In terms of journalism-related stresses, the main one reported by OSINT investigators was state aggression and backlash, um, specifically uh, online attacks through trolls on journalists, Um, And then finally, discrimination based on race, gender or nationality, which were sort of endemic problems within most traditional newsrooms. Um, The final set of um, stress was gay economy related, which was mostly reported by freelancers, where they said that the constant insecurity, the poor pay, the unsustainable work conditions... Um, and the pressure to overwork and multitask sort of uh, made uh, work-life balance almost impossible. Most um, Osin resp- because I asked OSINT respondents how how much they work in a week, and it sort of varied. But sixty percent said that they clocked in forty-one or more hours a week, and about forty percent said that they worked um, under up to forty hours a week. And in terms of sort of the causes of overwork, it was quite similar, except for OSINT, I think there was also the element of competition, as well as personal attachment, because sometimes, um, you know, you feel obligated to the victims. So the gravity of the OSINT investigations, because a lot of the time it was more than a job um, Then social media and 24 seven news going down the rabbit hole. Um, For journalism, there was also the added stress of lack of funding for investigative journalism, as well as the stress of impending deadlines. And um, also for gig economy, the the main stress was juggling multiple assignments and deadlines. Um, Finally, one of the leading causes of stress identified by respondents um, in this study, half of whom were women, and or people of color with systemic gender and race based discrimination within the journalism industry as a whole. So with investigative journalism in particular coming off as a predominantly white male dominated profession, where race and gender based microaggressions were often faced by women of color and were often ignored or erased. with regards, in terms of gender imbalances, it, it kind of uh, was evident in two ways. The first was sort of with regards to the modes of production. Only a few of the investigative journalists interviewed had ever had a female investigative editor with power flowing in a top-down manner when it came to commissions and contracts. And also most of the respondents identifying as OSEN tool developers barring one were also overwhelmingly male uh, for contributing to a gendered mode of production. Um, In terms of um, sort of um, the systemic racism in sort of um, investigative journalism units, including OSINT, most said that the power dynamics within the newsroom and the media industry as a whole often resulted in the contributions of women of color being minimized. So most women said that they were often not attributed in bylines or had to fight for attribution um, in investigations that they had either had a leading role in or had contributed to. And this in turn led to women, especially women of color and immigrants, not getting the same level of acclaim that um, um, their white, often male peers get. And this, in turn, leads to career stagnation. Um, Overall, um, because I come from sort of a broadcast background, I specifically asked um, those who are working in in TV what their experience was because bylines are sort of mostly related to print media and they described their work and efforts often remaining in the background, in research or behind the camera, while their white male peers fronted the stories in front of the camera, or were often implicitly given more credit than their non-white, non-male peers due to racial gender biases in audiences. Um, When I was sort of doing this research, um, obviously um, I was looking at sort of the structural issues within the BBC and Bellingcat um uh, the bbc every year put out um their disclosures on the best paid presenters so i managed to pull the top 10 highest paid um presenters for the bbc and turns out only 4 of the top 10 were women and 10 out of 10 of the bbc's top paid best paid presenters were all white so in terms of actual racial diversity the bbc is a lot far behind um, finally, the the other thing that was flagged by a lot of the women of colour was gamification and its impact uh, on OSINT. So gamification is loosely the concept of OSINT as a game with incremental steps to be followed to win a grand prize, um, was described as rewarding the objectification and abstraction of victims and their trauma while omitting the impact it had on investigators of color and as such excluded um the ability of these investigators to work on such projects so with gamification it it often sort of invokes gameful experiences towards a certain outcome But what it essentially also does is it invokes the same psychological experience as a game does and structurally relied on extrinsic motivators which focused on the consequences of the activity or the recognition or prestige or points rather than the intrinsic motivation of the activity, which is the issue at hand, which is the grave human rights abuses and accountability and justice and all those other ethics. So as a technique, uh, most... Investigators of color said that gamification trivialized the violation of human rights that were being researched or the work of those who may have undergone huge risks to produce the videos that were being analyzed. And um, one respondent also added that by favoring a gamified model over a trauma informed inclusive one. The investigation was not only severed from the goals of true accountability and empowerment, but also in terms of labor culminated in the distribution of work by freelancers of color did the heavy burden of filtering through graphic imagery that in turn made them more susceptible to being traumatized, which paradoxically, again, made them seem weaker than or less resilient than the white counterpart. So it's sort of snowballed into a, a series of microaggressions. Um, The final section, and then I'll stop talking, is the mental health impact. Um, 87% of respondents in the study said that they suffered from work-related mental health issues such as depression, insomnia, anxiety, PTSD, while 10% said that they didn't know of any colleagues or did not personally suffer from it. Um, The reported symptoms of work-related mental health crisis among OSINT um, journalists kind of varied. I'll just rattle off some of the symptoms reported. Um, Nightmares, insomnia, fatigue, depression, mood swings, irritability, inability to switch off, suicidal ideation, alienation, self-isolation and reduced social interactions, hallucinations, flinching at noises quitting um and of course overwhelming anxiety the causes of the mental health issues um, as self-identified by the respondents were sort of institutional so as as mentioned earlier uninformed attitudes to trauma especially mismanagement and lack of support from peers often made the trauma worse Uh, identity issues like race class gender ethnicity personal background being a freelancer, which obviously causes more stress, power imbalances, and finally, cultural issues like addiction to social media and repression of emotions. However, it must be noted that um, in most of the early research that I did into trauma, I found that journalists who partake in these kinds of investigations dealing with a high level of graphic violent imagery usually have a very high tolerance of this from the outset. So the point at which they start exhibiting these symptoms is already quite a late stage in itself because they're already more resilient than the general population. And um, the other thing that I found quite interesting when looking at sort of PTSD and how it develops most people tend to think that PTSD develops from the, from the trauma of the incident itself, that is the violence that is depicted. But um, actually the PTSD develops from a lack of control or uh, an inability to be prepared to respond to that violence. Um, and a really good example was, um, I, I read this study, which was done by uh, an academic who went and interviewed Torture survivors um, from Turkey's prison system and asked them what the most traumatic part was. And almost most of them said that it wasn't the torture in itself that caused the PTSD, but the complete lack of control over what was going to happen to them that caused the most amount of damage and scarring. So, as you know, as is the case with open source. most of the time you come across the graphic imagery when you're not really looking for it. And that's when most respondents said that they were startled by the content and that left a mark on them and um, left them with kind of severe PTSD in some cases. So um, I think there are some techniques which help you cope with it, some Um, Guidelines have been put out by the DART Center for Trauma. I think Giancarlo himself wrote a guide for Bellingcat. And there are some also um, given in the book called Digital Witness by Sam Doubley and Alex Aquining, which I really love. So if you do deal with this kind of imagery, definitely take a look. Finally, for freelancers, there was sort of um, an added um, stress of, uh, you know, the feeling of abandonment because they're not necessarily always um, included in the unit and often discarded after uh, the story is over. And specifically for freelancers, there was often a lack of institutional mental health support, which is usually always reserved for staff journalists. Um, I ended the study with sort of my recommendations, which I'll sort of loosely um, read out in five minutes or so so OSINT recommendations were sort of um, the creation of communities of OSINT developers who make the tools uh, which are funded independently through grants so that we're not beholden to uh, big tech Um, thinking about the impact of the work and what it means to the people on the ground and moving away from gamification um, lesser reliance on white male Europeans, however highly skilled they may be, to tell the stories of those who have been burdened by intergenerational trauma and forego- foregrounding the people less heard, giving back power to those without. The overall newsroom recommendations were about overhauling standard hiring practices, which were not necessarily always suitable to OSINT, um, interrogating the commissioning hierarchy and in investigating units, threat modeling the impacts of the stories on both journalists and victims, Empowering victims to present their own stories, uh, moving away from presenter-led docs, um, specifically white presenters fronting international stories in the Middle East, Africa and South Asia, valuing talent over star power or the number of followers you have on Twitter, investing in the development of OSINT tools um, in trauma-conscious workflows and training for management, And allowing journalists to influence executive decisions as well as allowing women of color and immigrants to front their own stories and make sure that they have all the tools for career development and career progression. And the general um, recommendations were sort of uh, minimum wage regulation, paid overtime, equal pay for equal work. The very basic ones like flexible deadlines focused on the quality of work sustainable funding mechanisms of investigative journalism, and finally, um, a greater understanding of human motivation um, underpinning Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So that is pretty much it from my end. Um, I will now hand over to Eric, if you've not all fallen asleep by now.
2: No, not at all. That was super interesting. Thank you for that. so, if you guys have any questions for the Q and A section, um, please drop them over to the Stage Talk Chat, Stage Talk Chat channel. A bit of a, bit of a tongue twister, and we will take um, the questions and ask um, our um, respective speaker. So, um, I see a few people are tapping, so I'll just wait for a bit
0: for people the questions to come in.
1: Great, right. thank you.
2: And yes, so there's a there's a, a um, logistics question. And yes, this is being recorded. So hello to everyone who's listening to the recording of this. And the um, recording of this will go on the SoundCloud probably later today. John Carlo usually gets them up uh, pretty quickly. OK. Um, so wait for um, a bit for more questions. But maybe just while we're waiting for other questions, um, do you have any thoughts on this just question I had? Um, about kind of how um, OSINT is emerging into other legacy newsrooms. So you talked a lot about the BBC, obviously, Mm -hmm. but do you have any thoughts about how um, kind of other traditional media outlets and legacy outlets are adopting the use of OSINT either for dedicated teams, so like obviously like the Visual Investigations in the New York Times and Visual Forensics of Washington Post, or just incorporating them into kind of like normal um, investigative processes that don't maybe have an an OSINT label.
1: Mm -hmm. So, um i actually spoke to uh quite a few journalists from the new york times visual investigations unit um i so most of the respondents wanted to be anonymous in the study especially because they were talking about management and uh mental health which is quite taboo in most um journalism spaces even now i think in terms of adoption the the most Mm -hmm amount of adoption I've seen has been around misinformation and verification so most breaking news outlets have somebody who's dedicated to just look at the OSINT side and verify the content that is being posted on social media but I think in terms of focusing a unit specifically on OSINT related long-term deep dive investigations I think I've only seen at the New York Times at Bellingcat um some of the work that um, the Human Rights Lab at Berkeley does and at BBC Eye, which uh, previously was um, BBC Arabic and uh, Africa Eye.
2: Thanks for that. And, um, and also want to throw out the visual forensics team at the Washington Post too, um, who do really good work. Um, yeah. And so we had the first question come in. So can you talk a little bit more about the monopoly of big tech companies on free tools? And do you have any um, suggested solutions for this?
1: I think the monopoly has uh, a negative and a positive. The positive is, even though the monopoly is Google's monopoly, Google is mostly widely available everywhere, and their tools are pretty sound. Like, the first thing I still do, even when I start an OSINT awesome investigation, is start uh, Google Sheets. Um, but I think the only workaround would be if news, independent news organizations started, you know, either investing in tool developers who understand um, the way um, OSINT-based investigative journalism work, or they start building their own tools themselves. But without that, I can't see ourselves um, not having a big tech monopoly on that.
2: And do you see, um, just as I see two or three people typing in the chat, so while they're waiting, um, just kind of going off that same question, do you see kind of a change in how um, kind of traditional legacy media investigative journals have handled things like tools like have you seen a surge of people learning you know learning python and navigating a github repository and things Mm -hmm. like that to use kind of these osin tools or do you think that's still kind of firmly in the realm of you know the more um you know niche OSINT groups and not so much something that you see kind of at at the the three you know the you know cnn and bbc and all the um legacy outlets
1: so in terms of reskilling to learn coding, what I've seen is instead of, uh, so most journalists who are learning OSINT tools are, uh, you know, if if you're comparing the OSINT tools that you had five years ago, they were slightly more clunky and less user-friendly. So the ones that we have, uh, which are sort of, I would like to say, second generation OSINT tools, a lot more user-friendly. So most of the journalists who are reskilling in OSINT don't necessarily have to go into coding. And they seem quite heavily disinclined to learn coding. Uh, But what I have seen is that a lot of the legacy media newsrooms like the BBC, The Guardian, um, I think to some extent, um, a lot of the OSINT labs have dedicated um, researchers who specialize in Python or coding and take over that aspect of the investigation. But in terms of sort of what mainstream journalists who are reskilling innocent are doing, they're literally learning new ways to verify the content. And verification has always been the first and most important step in investigative journalism. So in terms of met- met- you know, in terms of core focus, nothing has changed, but maybe the methodology now just involves a few more digital tools. And um I think in terms of in-house tool development Um, specifically talking about automation, moving slightly away from OSINT, um, the New York Times, Buzzfeed, uh, BBC have an entire research and development wing, which develop a lot, uh, lot of new tools that help automate the process of news reporting. But I haven't seen anything that is specifically dedicated to investigative journalism.
2: Thank you for that. Um, so we got a question into the chat now, so I'll just read it, um, verbatim here. Um, So, you mentioned the data explosion um, of journalists and investigators who were experienced uh, due to the growth of the internet. I'm curious if you have noticed any open source infrastructures being built to help with data storage and ease of availability for this large swath of information as we move forward. um, With kind of this huge rise and boom of of open source information, um, what have you noticed about kind of the infrastructure behind it uh, to support this big boom of um, data?
1: I think um, in terms of tackling the information explosion, there's been sort of two different kinds of responses. The first has been sort of the collective um, responses. So I think um, OCCRP and a couple of other international news organizations have created uh, places that consolidated all the data from the leaks to make it easier to search for companies, you know, shell companies that might be connected to, uh, you know, people. Uh, who have been doing dodgy stuff before and have been um, outed in leaks. So that's kind of like the public, international, uh, collaborative infrastructure that is slowly being set up, but it's not by any means uh, complete or a silver bullet. And then I think internally within the newsroom, um, because uh, a lot of uh, the investigative journalist units and legacy media newsrooms have hired coders now, What they're doing is they're sort of building their internal databases, which um, sort of consolidate a lot of the leaks to make it easier for their journalists to look up stuff and, you know, report faster. So I think there is, because there is still that element of competition which exists, which to some extent is healthy, um, I don't think we're going to find the best, you know, consolidated tool um, freely available.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point to note because a lot of times when you have, you know, quote unquote data journalism that's exploded. Um, you know, one thing is showing your work, right? But of actually providing the same data sets to the public, I think is is yeah. kind of a And some places are a lot more open to that than others. But I think that's um, especially when you think about um this Gives me, you know, rhapsodizing a bit, but a lot of the best investigations and OSIN investigations that come out are people just building off of other people's work, right? So if you show your work and show your data sets, and if you have mm. the ability to host that, whether it's, you know, a simple Google Drive or if it's kind of a um, a proprietary data um, platform, I think that's, that's a really, um, it's a very, um, let's say, egalitarian way of showing your work and sharing your knowledge, So,
1: Absolutely. I think um, especially in the wake of sort of the, the financial leagues, we're seeing that collaborative journalism does have a much greater impact in taking down the bad guys. So I think in terms of accountability, collaborative journalism is still the way to go
2: and of course for those, I think most people have thought about this already, but of course the OCCRP is kind of the um, poster child for all of this work because they um, host like the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers that's uh, all open data that's, you know, searchable index and all that, and that's kind of a lot of the work they do. So a lot of times, while I was talking about this proprietary data platforms, the OCCRP is kind of like the, the, the epitome of that in particular. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: So another question that came in is thinking about um, with misinformation, disinformation, this I'm just reading the question here. Is a matter of exclusion of information um, and uh, and where context is very, very important. And that there's a challenge of capturing information in a a way that provides context, but also make it indexable and searchable. So what are some ways that you would recommend for OSINT researchers to better capture complete data that keeps the original context, but maybe not so much that's where it's still useful for broader research? Um, regarding trends so i think this kind of ties into the um, previous question around um providing data um and, and keeping infrastructure up but when you take up talk about misinformation disinformation in particular where you're working with you know junk data that often is a lot of junk and can oft also you know you have the challenge of um you don't want to boost you know disinformation exactly. narratives too so how do you handle this and handle context in particular and maybe how you would talk about how um, some outlets, um, your recommendations, and also maybe what your thoughts on how some outlets have handled that responsibly.
1: I think the ethical um, questions around um, how you handle this data still sort of go back to the old ethical questions that we we had when the Afghan warlocks came out. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, the the debate back then was about whether all the Afghan warlocks should be made radically transparent and available for everyone to see? Or should the names of the informants um, who were based in Afghanistan, who were Afghan themselves, be protected so that they're not killed? And um, even though that seems like a completely different ethical dilemma, the issue is still about how you make a convincing argument using the facts without accidentally boosting um misinformation or causing you know physical harm to the people who have lives to give you that information and i think it definitely i don't think there is a silver bullet for this i think it has to be decided on a case-by-case basis so for example i necessarily if i were uh, the the last um fact check that i'd done of this kind was when Ro- russia claimed to not use the tochka u missile in donetsk and luhansk and i had sort of done um a fact check for uh, for bbc reality check pointing out every single instance where they had used um the u contrary to their uh, claims and i i sort of just put the evidence up there but i didn't necessarily want to amplify their misinformation by tagging the tweet or by repeating verbatim what their claims were, because it's simply, you know, at that point, you're simply playing the SEO game and you don't want to give them more hits than they've already got.
2: Yeah, thanks for that. That's, yeah, it's always very challenging. It's kind of like a, um, like a Goldilocks situation, right? Like too hot and too cold, like hit like the right level of. Um... You know if it's too big then you know at that point it doesn't really matter versus um when it's first starting off you don't want to boost something and give it new oxygen so it's, it's a tough situation yeah
0: um,
2: well another question we have here is um you mentioned um geoent earlier and how it's exploded with silent imagery and all that and we you know we've seen that ourselves we put an article up um a few days ago where we tasked the silent image in burkina faso and was able to report on that specifically so it's very exciting world of geoent um, and the question here, what are some major opportunities and also challenges that you see with with this and reporting today? Um,
1: I'll, I'll tackle the challenge first because um, I think I'm still sore about TerraServer being taken down. I think there has been a lot more different kinds of opportunities um, in terms of um, GEOINT because of the rise of commercial satellites, but most of them are hugely expensive inaccessible to most um, freelancers who have to pay out of their pocket Um, especially you know those kinds of hobbyists who are not entirely sure if they want to go into OSINT or if OSINT is right for them which is kind of a stage that everyone who's in OSINT has been through at some point the early stages and I think the second issue is still with resolution even though we've got satellites with the really Highest resolution that we could possibly ask for. Most of them aren't free, or um, you know, the other issue is with time. So you you can task a satellite to look at a specific area, like like you recently did, but I think um, it's really tricky. For example, when something like uh, you know the Beirut blast happens. Um, in in Lebanon, and you're just like, oh, I wish I had uh, really high-res imagery of the ship arriving with that cargo, and you don't have that because you can't build a time machine and go back in the past and task the satellite to cover that. So I think it's still sort of at the stage where we're seeing new developments in how we can task it, how it can be used, but I think accessibility still is a huge problem if that makes sense
2: yeah no it makes it makes perfect sense and hopefully this is getting better over time i think i think it is Mm -hmm. but it's still um you know services like planet are still very expensive but they're not um impossible that's one way to put it maybe
1: Um, yeah and also I i think you have to predict a lot of what you want to capture so um, uh, it's obviously a, a lot easier if there is an ongoing conflict. Like you know, you just park a satellite over Kherson That would be you know uh, really really useful. But um, I think it does need quite a lot of vigilance and a lot of foresight.
2: Absolutely, and it's hard to get practice too when you're not mm-hmm. looking at these things constantly. Yeah. You know. Yep. Um, Another question here. Um, so we we mentioned this. Uh, we put a few things in the chat around this already. But someone asked for just kind of a general. If someone is getting started with um, OSINT tools and they just want to survey the landscape, um, are there any any um, resources you would recommend in particular? We we linked our toolkit in there if anyone's interested. But anything that you you would use yourself or do you know that other newsrooms use, um, kind of as a general um, kind of survey or guide mm-hmm. or kind of a one stop shop, a lot of OSEN resources.
1: Um. So the valencard guide is absolutely brilliant um i also put together a guide which is in in the phd so in the typology of tools i actually um, When developing it, I asked all of the respondents, what are the top five tools that you cannot do without when starting an investigation? And they all had different kinds of specialisms. Some were weapons experts, some were um, geoengineers experts. So I've taken all of that and built a sort of like the ultimate toolkit, which is you can find in my Ph.D. And the Ph.D. is freely, you know, it's open access, freely available. You can find it uh, under the academia section on my website. So you can take a look there.
2: That's right. I was googling furiously trying to get, trying to get to it while you are talking. So I'll I'll link to that into the uh, chat as well, so everyone can read it. Um, Thank you. Um, okay. Um, any more um, questions? If we um, just looking at the chat, looks like we um, those are all the questions we got. So we have finished up almost exactly on time. And I just put a link to the PDF of um, Dr. Ganguly's. Uh, dissertation, which is very lengthy. Um, so you have to scroll for a ways. So, I mean it's a dissertation, so of course it is. Yeah. A scroll away, for a it's uh it's almost 400 pages, as you know better than any of us, um, to get to these tools. So just look at the um at the um table of contents to get to that. So for those who are interested. And thanks again for sharing that. Um, okay <laughs> and if we have any last second questions Roland, um thanks so much for talking with us. Um and you can um follow her on Twitter at uh well you can just tell us what your handle is I'm, well, I'm, instead of me furiously looking for it?
1: Um, yeah, it's at Manisha underscore bot, and I am not a real bot. I'm a real person.
2: Exactly. And I'll link to that into the chat as well. And if you want to check out her dissertation, it's also in the Sage Talk chat as well, too. Um, great. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so let's wrap this up. And again, if you missed any part of this, Michon um, Carlo put the full recording of the session onto SoundCloud, and you can listen from the beginning. So thanks again for joining us, Manisha. Um,
1: Thanks so much for having me and have a good rest of the day for those of us listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.